Good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to welcome you to UCHRI's um, event on elemental life. This is the beginning of a series with the first focus on fire. Um, I'd like to welcome you all um, to what should be a really stimulating conversation. I'm David Theo Goldberg. I direct the University of California Humanities Research Institute uh, that is hosting this event. I'd like to start just by thanking the staff for helping put this together at UCHRI. We wouldn't run without them, as well as uh, our two trusty ASL interpreters, Bob Leparo uh, and Suzanne Lightbourne. You'll see them um, shifting from one to the other throughout the event. So uh, thank you both for doing that. Um, uh, Elemental Life is a series of online conversations to weigh the impact of our world's transformations as refract, refract, refracted excuse me, through the lens of the four classical elements. UCHRI's Living Through Upheaval series brings into conversation scholars, activists, and artists from across the US and beyond to explore the political, ecological, and social change dynamics of living through upheaval. I want to thank especially our four terrific panelists this evening who, who have agreed to uh, join us. I'm afraid um, that unfortunately, uh, Abram Lustgarten had to pull out at the last moment. Uh, he cannot join us because of a late breaking immovable work commitment, otherwise known as a journalistic deadline. Uh, Brandy Summers has kindly agreed to move from being a moderator uh, it, uh, to being a panelist. So I especially want to thank Brandy uh, for the last minute shift uh, and I will serve uh, as the moderator. So thanks to all of you, um, Brandy Summers, Beth Parvinelli, Karen Tay Yamashita uh, and Elizabeth Hoover. Uh, it's terrific. I'll begin just by very brief introductions to each of you, uh, to each of the panelists. Uh, make some comments just about the general topic of fire and then start off with some uh, questions directed at our panelists. Uh, if you have any questions, please uh, enter them, not in the chat function, but in the Q and A function. We've turned off chat, of course, to avoid Zoom bombing. Elizabeth Hoover holds faculty positions in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management at UC Berkeley. She's just joined us, so a great welcome to you. She was at Brown prior to this. Her research focuses on Native American environmental health and food sovereignty movements, indigenous use of fire, Native American museum curation, community-based participatory research, environmental justice, and food justice. Uh, a, a book, The River Is In Us, Fighting Toxins in a Mohawk Community, from 2017 is an ethnographic exploration of Akwesasne Mohawk's response to Superfund contamination and environmental health research. Elizabeth or Beth Pavanelli, as she's well known, uh, holds a Franz Boas Professor of Anthropology at Columbia University. She's a critical theorist and filmmaker whose writing is focused on developing critical theory um, of late settler liberalism that would support an anthropology of what she calls, and I would join her in doing this, uh, and otherwise. The work has unfolded across a more than three decade collaboration with her indigenous colleagues 
and collaborators in North Australia, um, including most recently six films they've created as members of the Caribbean Film Collective. The most recent book, Geo-Ontologies, A Requiem to Late Liberalism, has received a wide range of acclaim. It's a book among many. Um, Brandy Summers uh, holds faculty positions in geography and global metropolitan studies at UC Berkeley. Um, a little less recently joined Berkeley than uh, Elizabeth, but recent enough to be able to welcome her uh, into um, our extended fold. Her research boards uh, on epistemological and methodological insights from cultural and urban geography, urban sociology, African-American studies, and media studies. Brandy's book, Black in Place, The Spatial Aesthetics of Race in, post, in a Post-Chocolate City, explores how aesthetics and race converge to locate a map black blackness in Washington, D.C., and she's working on uh, related work in the context of her home place, Oakland. Um, and Karen Yamash uh, Te Yamashita uh, holds positions in literature, uh, the Creative Writing Program, and Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at UC Santa Cruz. Her work focuses on the history and anthropology of Japanese immigration to Brazil, Asian American literature, modern fiction, and playwriting. She's the author of many, uh, several of which are career-winning, uh, award-winning books, um, novels. Uh, I'll mention just a couple. Tropic of Orange, uh, not least, uh, most directly related to our topic this evening. Uh, I Hotel uh, and Letters to Memory. Uh, so a wonderful panel. Um, uh, and we look forward to a really rich discussion. So let me begin just with a few quick comments. Prometheus, as the, the god of fire, one almost right um, in a cliched way has <laughs> to start with Prometheus. Uh, Prometheus as the god of fire, having stolen the flame to pass onto humankind, apparently supposedly ignited civilization at once setting it alight and threatening it with destruction. There's a related myth of Maui in Maori culture, uh, taking on some accounts, stealing fire from his grandmother to make more readily, uh, it more readily available to um, uh, the world at large. Mekoato uh, in Aztec telling, harnessed percussion lightning and fashioned what is what we've come to call the fire drill. Um, Saraka, the Sami hearth goddess, has been thought to reside in every Sami hearth, a constant companion across the extended winter. You might say then that fire is a founding condition, a force to be sure of nature culture. And the way in which those two things come together, I think will be at the center of some of the discussion tonight. So, um, just to extend this, uh, Gaston Bachelard in The Psychoanalysis of Fire writes that fire is a privileged phenomenon which can explain pretty much anything. The pretty much is me adding. If all that changes slowly can be explained by life, all that changes quickly is explained by fire. Fire is the ultra living element. It lives in our heart. It lives in the sky. Among all the phenomena, it really is the only one to which there can be so definitely attributed 
the opposing values of good and evil. I mean, right, that's Bashala sort of extending himself. It shines in paradise, it burns in hell. So that's uh, Bashala's quote. So let me now, having sort of just laid that as the broad frame of the discussion, um, without delimiting anything that anybody says, uh, let me begin by posing a question to Elizabeth Hoover. Um, uh, Elizabeth, you've written probingly uh, about especially water protectors, and we could add also environmental and rights protectors that are part of the kind of extended reach over here, especially in the context of indigenous commitments at Standing Rock. In that context, you've mapped out the, um, Elizabeth, I should just add for the audience, has done really terrific ethnographic work about the, uh, both the conditions of living during the, um, the uprising and, and uh, protection uh, engagements at Standing Rock. In that context, you've mapped out the complex landscape of fire as material and symbolic element, as a communal relational force as ecological and political energy, indeed, as a mode of resistance. So all these things are woven complexly into your ethnographic um, writing. You have traced some of the especially gendered considerations of the pyro-political. Could you start then just by mapping and reflecting aloud for us on some of these interwoven pyro-political threads of the importance of fire as what one might call a technology of the political. Yes, good evening, everybody. From here in occupied Ohlone territory and wherever you might happen to be on this evening or listening in the future. So just to give a little background, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is located in South Dakota, right near the North Dakota border. And um, leading up to 2016, the Dakota Access Pipeline, a project of the Energy Transfer Partners, um, stated you know, on a map that they were going to go near Bismarck with their pipeline. The people of Bismarck said, no, we don't want our water sources impact. So they decided to move downstream from this very white city to instead put the pipeline right under the water source of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. And so in April 2016, people gathered, um, you know, sent out petitions, tried um, various and assorted legal routes, and when no one was listening, started setting up these camps on land that, they, that had been taken by the Army Corps of Engineers during a previous series of um, land destructive projects and started setting up these camps as a way of bringing people together. And the founding, those camps were founded with the sacred fire and prayers were put in there that people would come. And people did come, thousands and thousands of people ended up coming from around the world. Um, by the time I got there in November of 2016, they were guessing there were 15,000 people there that weekend. So it was a, a movement that really attracted people from other native communities in the US and North America, but also um, tribal people from all over the world. I met Sami people from Norway, people from New Zealand, um, Palestine, and then also other allies who just um, thought this was an egregiously terrible project. And people coming into this camp started by having to check in at this ceremonial fire. 
Um, and then there were also social fires. And there, you know, at night, people would gather around these to stay warm. Um, there was music, there were people telling stories. And so it really became this kind of village life that people um, centered around these series of, of social fires. And then um, there were fires inside homes, like this is why I've got this picture up behind my head. This is one of the teepees um, that people were sleeping in. There were also kind of uh, more hastily assembled tarpies that, that people stayed in. And and thinking about home fires, um, you know, to borrow Cynthia Fowler's term of pyrosphere or who gathers around a fire and how do you develop your society in that way. Um, and so for some of the indigenous communities, say like for Lakota people, um, my friend Winia was describing about how in Lakota, the words for family and fire are very closely linked because the people who sit around your fire are the people who comprise your family. Um, and in the, the Mohawk language, um, the term aguajile is, is for people who gather around your fire. It's the word for family and it's the word for fire and they're all very connected. Um, so people, you know, had these fires that they slept around. There were stoves, there were uh, different kind of furnaces that people, um, you know, propane heaters and people developed new kinds of families around these fires and the negotiations that went into who has to feed the fire and um, you know, how often and how hot are you going to let it get at night? And so there was a lot of domestic negotiations that happened um, around things getting too hot and things getting too cold if you didn't take care of this properly. And then there were cooking fires. So everybody who came into these camps was fed three meals a day. And so all of these impromptu kitchens popped up, um, people cooking over fires, over propane lit stoves, and recognizing the irony of cooking over fracked gas when you're there fighting an oil pipeline. Um, so there's nothing perfect about any of these projects, but you know, utilizing the resources available to be able to cook meals for people. And then frontline fires. Um, so there was, you know, beforehand I was asking, is, is this too aggressive a, a background photo while I'm speaking? Um, but people, you had a lot of youth who um, were really kind of feeling the 500 years of oppression that their communities had been living under and came together. And when all of the hired guns and Morton County officials and police from 80 other units around the country came um, to, to crush part of this movement, fire was used as a way of um, keeping a, a, a barricade between the camps and the authorities. And as part of it, you know, this is where um, you know, one of the, the women I interviewed who was there the day that a lot of construction equipment burned and she said, you know, it was really beautiful because here you had all these people who had been repressed, who'd been pent up, um, things got a little out of hand and the match was lit and to watch something that was supposed to be for construction be destructed in that way felt very powerful to these, these youth who had been um, kind of pent up. Um, but and there was a lot of tear gas <laughs> that was utilized as part of it as well. So this is a, a photo I took from my iPhone while running. Um, and so this was something that was also part of the, the elements of fire and smoke and gas that were part of it. And participating in some of these kind of um, barricade fires were criminalized. So there were some people that were charged with the felony of knowingly using fire to commit civil disorder is a specific felony you could be charged with. Um, and, you know, Fire suppression is part of what has led, you know, via forest service policies is part of what has led to all of the different 
um, wildfires that we're contending with right now. So I just arrived in Berkeley and the day uh, my plane touched down, the neighborhood was under evacuation notice. It was like, okay, I have arrived. I am here in California. Um, and people have pointed to, well, indigenous people had all of these practices of letting things burn gradually and having a different relationship with fire. And when you let it build up, when you let that fuel build up, when the spark happens, um, it goes in a conflagration. And we saw that with people um, who had felt oppressed, who came to take part in this movement and things started to burn. After Standing Rock um, was squashed, there were repressive laws that were passed that made taking part in these kind of movements uh, much more legal than they had previously. So squashing protests like fire suppression is kind of seen as this precondition for a smoothly running petrofueled economy. Um, and the camp went out in fire. So in February 22nd, there was a deadline for people to evacuate and they burned down their homes rather than to allow them to be bulldozed by the authorities um, so that they, they couldn't be desecrated as in other camps that had been destroyed um, as part of this movement. And then the last remaining thing that went home with people was the smell of smoke that really marked water protectors. And so, you know, throughout the time that people were camped there, if you went into town, people knew um, who you were because you smelled like smoke because of being in constant uh, relationship with fire as part of this whole process. So people talked about it as Oshati Cologne, um, you know, naming it after the camp that when people got home and they missed being part of this camp process, they got nostalgic and people tried to keep clothes sealed up so they would maintain that smell. Um, I went, I was there uh, camping a few weeks in November and a few weeks in January. Um, and I went directly from Ashati uh, Shikoi to Chicago to give a, a talk at the university. And um, while I was um, off giving my talk, the housekeeping lady um, febrezed all of my possessions because I think she thought they stunk. But I was really sad to come back and to find that that smell had been completely eradicated as a way of normalizing me to Chicago. Um, but in thinking about the way that that social movements work, um, you know, I've read a lot of Stephen Pine. He's a, a fire ecologist, and his work about how the how wildfires work and how um, the materials have to build up in a certain way, and then the spark has to come in a particular way, and then if it catches, it goes. And and as I first read his work, I said, "This he's talking about social movements," and he came to Brown, and I, I heard him speak, and I said, "You're talking about social movements," and he said. No, I'm talking about fire. And I was like, no, but but it's it's all social movements. People and fire are all the same and move the same and behave in many of the same ways. Um, so this is what led me as part of my experience of um, you know taking part at this camp as as a cook, as a participant, as an ethnographer, but also as you know observing the way that the people then took these relationships with fire home to their own communities. So you know some people became very burned out um, and you know martyr who writes about the uh, pyropolitics and he said okay part of the problem with this phoenix complex is that people always assume things can rise from the ashes again um, and sometimes it just doesn't we just have to accept the destruction um, and in this case some people still rose up out of this kind of very grim situation and, and work to continue things on and pass that spark and take that ember home to their own communities so I'll I'll leave other people a chance to talk as well. I get a little excited. Thanks, thanks, Elizabeth. It's very rich of a camp. Um, so Beth, uh, Beth Pavanelli, uh, you two have written to interweave fire, the environmental, the effective uh, as productive force, 
um, as condition of excitation and, and indeed of desire or desideration, life enabling and polluting, death making and indeed death defying. There's both the industrializing of fire, the kind of smelting, um, uh, smithing, smelting condition, energy producing condition of fire, and cultures of fire, or fire is a significant element in cultural imaginaries. Um, and the two often get interwoven with each other in com complex ways. In a word, fire is both weather fueled and impacting, weather affecting to be sure, and indeed to be weathered. Um, in these interweaving senses, fire uh, is elemental in the sense that we're addressing it here, but it, you could say it has no singularity, even though it's often claimed to have. Can you reflect a bit on the relational conditions of, of fire, conditional conditions? It's attracting and unnerving character its necessity and danger in the way in which you've sort of drawn on your own history of experience to sort of address these sorts of things. There now, <laughs> thank you. Um, and I think I'm gonna be building from what Elizabeth was just talking about, although in a very slightly in a different context. I'd probably start by saying that my initial relationship to fire came from the from North Louisiana, where I grew up, but am not from. So we moved down there in 1964 when I was two and a half. So that's uh, the you know between 1964 and 1965. That's when we saw in the U.S. the passage of the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Act. And in North Louisiana in Shreveport, you know, that was one of the hearts of the refusal by some to um, engage in any kind of desegregation, let alone racial justice. Um, so fire there has a very long history. It has very deep racial history. More personally, it had a relationship between a form of um, building out into the force in which we were growing up, but a force that seemed to, as a little kid, me, and as a white kid, me, to be empty. And thus, when we were seeing this, siblings and I were seeing this, this construction, the building into what we considered our forest, depended on a much longer history of settler colonialism, that is, the movement of the Caddo, right, through series of violences and, you know, the, the long trail of tears out of the area, the movement of the forced movement of enslaved men and women, black men and women into the area. And then the kind of fires that we lit to burn down the buildings we thought should be there, but a history of racial and settler fire. So in some ways that's the really long background or the deep background that then when I first came to Australia kind of sat with me, this the, the racialization and the colonialization of fire as a technology of dispossession and continual racial injustice. Now in Australia, um, 
fire in manifest forms have been fundamental to what I've called late liberal settler governance, governance of difference and the governance of markets. So in the 1950s, one of the, one of the, the, the a lot of folks say the, the movement toward indigenous self-determination emerged out of the 1950s during two scandals um, having to do with mining and uranium mining in Western Australia, right? So that there was a, um, there was a series of uh, publicity about um, indigenous folks in the Warburton area um, that, that led settler Australians to realize that the states had control over mining and uranium mining, not the federal government. So the federal government didn't have control over the use of mineral resources in the states, nor did it have control over or have any say with the way in which states were treating indigenous people there. So settler Australians, white Australians felt implicated for the first time because they were subject to a kind of fire, a potential fire, the kind of fire that emerged from uranium mining. And the reason I start there is that contemporary late liberal forms of the governance of indigenous difference really emerged. There's a significant shift in the 1950s in which white Australians suddenly said, oh, you know, with the pushing of indigenous social movements that this older policy of assimilation and genocide didn't fit their vision of themselves anymore. And it led to very slowly, first the referendum in 1967, which for the first time indigenous um, men and women and families had to be counted in the state and national census. Up to that point, indigenous people weren't even counted. They were people who were non-persons, right? And then it led to, in the 1970s, to the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, which pertained to the Northern Territory that gave indigenous groups the possibility, and listen to this language, I mean, gave them the possibility of claiming their land, the lands that hadn't been alienated. Now, it makes no sense. It's like someone steals something from you. Then it says, oh, sorry, right, I stole that from you. That was wrong. Now you can claim it back, but you have to prove yourself to be what a social anthropologist imagines a traditional Aboriginal owner to be. Now, but that was that was announced as this watershed in Australian relations with Indigenous people. Um, it was announced as a watershed in giving Indigenous people self-determination. But it did so on the basis of a very conservative social anthropological model. Why is this important for fire? Because the mining lobby was fundamental to the writing of this law. The mining lobby wanted to maintain access to large magnesium fields, uranium, and et cetera, all of which were fundamental to the Australian's GDP. Australia is mainly a mining export country. So what the
the mining industry thought and the government thought is that providing this kind of determination that demanded that indigenous people think of that their forms of belonging to each other and to the land as proprietary and people like Glenn Coulthard in, in Canada have talked about this too. What this did was allow miners and other kind of extractive industries to force indigenous people to articulate their forms of belonging to a proprietary uh, uh, form that would allow them to gain access to lands to make these agreements. And so we've, you know, there continues to be a mining boom. There's the, the, the passage of this law um, allowed mining operations to continue in the north and Western Australia and et cetera to mine booming such that by 2008, when the Great Recession happened, Australia didn't really suffer from it. Um, it instead, it intensified pressure on indigenous people if they wanted any forms of compensation to open their lands to mining. Right? So that there was this continual digging process that went primarily to China um, and intensified climate change. Now, all of this is about mining. What does it have to do about fires? Right? All in this process is fire in the background. Smelting fires, right? Carbon fires that don't seem to be fire yet, right? We think of rust as a slow fire, but we can also see temperature as a slow fire and a certain kind of heating that's occurring with slow fires. All of which was facilitated by a settler understanding and a settler demand that indigenous people conform to an understanding of human, human, and the human, the more than human world in this proprietary model. In 2019, actual fire started ripping through Australia, like we saw in California. And something, you know, kind of predictable happened, I think, many of us think, certainly my, my colleagues, my family in Cotterbing think. When the fire started to affect them, oh, and I should say one other thing, in the background is not only heat, but in the background is something that Elizabeth's work has really talked about, which is toxicity. The relationship between mining, toxic tailings, right? All, all the, the separation of, and we've seen this, the separation of value from, from um, Africans that were forced into slaves. So you pull out that value and you leave behind an exhausted body. The pulling out of what was considered valuable in, in, in Native American First Nation indigenous lands. And what do they do? They leave behind the tailings, all the toxic tailings, right? So that when fires are lit, and again, I think Elizabeth can talk about this more than I could, when fires are lit, not only are you producing carbon that adds to, and when mining is moved into industrial processes, not only are you creating more carbon and you're, right? But you leave behind these tailors, tailings so that when you light fire, say in a quote cultural way, although I don't like that word, you also are, are 
are oxidizing those toxins. And so there's this continual intensification of the relationship between leaving toxicity, digging a mine, leaving toxicity behind, and then in the fire season, intensing, intensifying that toxicity. In 2019, when these fires started moving through us in, in terrible ways, right? Through, especially South, South Australia, I'm up North, South Australia, we suddenly saw emerging a public rhetoric of turning to indigenous people for the answer to fire management. Exactly what Elizabeth was talking about, fire management. So, so again, public officials, fire departments, radio and television pundits all said, perhaps we should ask our indigenous colleagues, our indigenous citizens, how to do this? How, do, how should we manage fire at this point? And, and there was, there's a singer, there's a band in Australia who, you know, I know through other people um, called Stone and Angus, and they wanted to, and they did, they covered, you could Google this, they covered um, uh, midnight oils, beds are burning to raise money for uh, fire reliefs. And they asked Karabing, the Karabing Film Collective, if um, we would contribute some lyrics, some background lyrics. And so the young folk, the younger adults in Cotterbing said, yeah, that would be cool. Um, but then it was really super interesting in the lyrics they came up with. They wanted to do more of a hip hop. They said, this is kind of dull, let's liven it up. Um, and the, the lyrics pointed to what Cotterbing considers the ongoing uh, psychosis <laughs> of settler industrial, settler, late liberal settler colonialism, which is this, this kind of psychotic break with their own practices, right? Because the lyrics weren't um, simply, well, in our traditions, we do X, right? The lyrics started with try, try, talk lolia, which is, you, you know, you try and talk to these people. They don't listen, they don't listen. Like how many years have we tried to tell them and they won't listen, right? And then there's, I don't, I, you can listen to the song, you can actually go and listen. And then there's a lyric with, you know, um, we were taught to burn the grass when it's properly dry. So early, but it's dry. So you can do this fire management. But what, what are we gonna do when the whole world is dry, right? Try, try, talk to all of you. They don't listen, they don't listen. And as part of the discussion, um, between, you know, in this discussion was the, 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 the attempt of, you know, young adult Cotterbing members to say, what are you asking us? You have, you have pounded the earth almost to cement. You have recreated the ecological system so that even in the north, when we light fires, we're lighting different grass. And that different grass burns in a different way. And when we light fire, sometimes we're letting exactly where those, because just we're angry, right? Because you won't listen. But, uh, but you, you only turn to us, you only ask us what we think when your houses are burning, right? 
So, so part of what we're looking at is this movement, the circulation of industrial capitalism, governance of difference, and a certain kind of psychotic refusal to understand how they're related. And then the treatment of indigenous people and other racialized people as if they're just a repository that can be drawn on to help save the people who are causing the problem. Thank you. Again, a very rich uh, account. Um, so um, the question of race has been made explicit, of course, in all of this. And I want to turn to Brandy um, to ask what the ways are you see fire being taken up in the context of an urban politics um, in all its complexity. Uh, obviously, the, the, the notion of conflagration uh, so easily or readily applied to urban uprisings when they assume certain expressions, speak to both the literal and metaphorical framings in terms of fire that position people, I mean, that very conception positions um, people expressing themselves in particular kinds of ways, uh, positions them um, both literally and symbolically. Uh, uh, in, in the context of a social understanding uh, of the movements that are taking place. Can you think um, aloud some about fire as an urban political technology, the way it get, gets taken up, the way it gets used, the way it, it, um, uh, it expresses a form of the political uh, and, uh, and its sets of symbolisms and counter symbolisms at work? That would be great, thanks. Sure, thank you, David, for um, organizing this and, and allowing me to be in conversation. I think it's gonna be a great one. Um, so, you know, I, I wanna actually start where Beth started um, in Louisiana. Um, so my family migrated to California from Northern Louisiana um, and uh, they fled uh, because my great grandfather um, was apparently inappropriate with a white woman. Um, he looked at her the wrong way. Um, and basically my family had to pick up uh, and move, get out of town. Uh, and so he also owned a business uh, which ended up being burned down um, as a result of this impropriety. So just thinking again about this context and the racialization of fire, um, again, used as this technology, not only to elicit fear, um, but also to burn uh, a business, which they didn't want him to have in the first place, um, to the ground and, you know, having to start anew in another location. So, you know, I, I, I've thought about this question over the last couple of days. And so shifting from moderator to panelist, um, I've been thinking more um, about fire in the urban context. Mostly, you know, there are these ways that yes, if we think about um, upheavals, if we think about resistance, if we think about challenges to the state um, and the state's uh, constant desire to protect property over people, it seems as though the most logical response is to burn everything down. And so often, you know, people who are involved in uprisings are questioned as to why would you burn down, tear down your own neighborhood when in reality it is this political process um, to let people know again that you don't care about us, you care more about these buildings. So maybe it's time to listen. But then I thought about, you know, 
the, the use of fire or the role of fire as this tool of the state or really this form of statecraft. Um, and so I thought locally, um, there's a, an area that doesn't exist anymore in the Bay Area called Russell City. It was an unincorporated area and it's now part of Hayward, um, which is a suburb um, outside of, of uh, Oakland, San Leandro area. And there was Russell City, um, it was settled by a Danish immigrant and he, I think it was settled in, in, 18, in 1850. So it ended up being a sanctuary for black people um, prior to the Civil War. And so for many years, um, this city, this area was inhabited by a diverse group of people because as time wore on, restrictive covenants um, determined the racial geography of the Bay Area and, and Russell City ended up being one of those territories where Black and Latinx people could live. Over time, we start to see where not only the county, but the city of Hayward didn't provide it with any resources whatsoever. So people really had to fend for themselves. And so there was a point at which Hayward wanted to um, expand and started buying property um, in Russell City because they wanted to um, make it into a, um, an industrial park. And so the easiest way to do that is you determine areas blighted or you determine that areas are uninhabitable. Therefore, they have to be taken over um, and remade to be habitable or at least to be usable again. And so as Hayward started to buy up parts of the city, there were still people who refused to leave. And so what was the final straw, what was the nail in the coffin were this mysterious set of unresolved arson fires that took place in the 1950s that a lot of Russell City residents knew were from officials. All of a sudden they said there were electrical fires, right? Even though people didn't actually have electricity because they weren't being served. So there are these ways that they were trying to take over this territory and make it their own by burning it to the ground. And this was the cheapest way to get people to move out, right? So I've been thinking about that in terms of how fire ends up being a way to move people, right? So if we think about it, you know, more recently, um, especially in terms of uh, my research on gentrification, and especially as I'm looking more in the Bay Area, you know, we're, we're thinking about gentrification in, in, in this way of, you know, increasing inequality or unchecked development, especially, um, and also racial division. So what ends up happening is that speculation acts as this accelerant. Right, so it actually fuels a particular kind of fire. So there's a metaphorical way we can think about the fire that's essentially burning, but then it's literal at the same time. So in 2016, we have the ghost ship warehouse fire where 36 artists um, died uh, because there was this, um, it was a, an illegally modified warehouse that caught fire. And it was again, home to several artists and musicians who were ultimately priced out of the market. So it was this stage of, you know, gentrification where it wasn't the artists who could afford to live in these disinvested neighborhoods, but it didn't move past them. So that's 2016. But then in 2018, we have this rash of arsons and, and suspicious fires in Oakland, where there were several um, residential developments. Um, I think there were, there were six um, between 2017 and 2018 that were set ablaze. Um, and so, you know, there were a number of people who weren't particularly sad about it because there were these, you know, huge townhome um, mixed use communities that were being built millions of dollars 
and you know saved maybe five percent for um, affordable housing. And so in the neighborhood, fires were struck in order to essentially in intimidate um, and move development. But again, it was the gentrification that really spurred kind of this burning, right? And so there were, um, this was not only in areas of West Oakland uh, where there's been this rampant speculation that's taken place, but also there were several major fires of housing developments in East Oakland um, and also in the East Bay between 2017 and 2018. It, it's, it went on into 2019 too, where there was a, an uh, arsonist suspected of um, burning down a nearly completed um, loft project in, in North Oakland. So there are these ways where, you know, arson um, is being understood as pushing against the shift, um, this urban restructuring, this way of displacing people. But fire might be the only way to get enough attention. And then also to honestly have these developers use new materials in order to build the structure again. So it's gonna have to really kind of um, go against this really strong wave of people and, and process and technology that's being used to again, um, deter the activity. I don't wanna go on for too long, but I, I do wanna also think about kind of imagining a, a future, right? And so in thinking about, you know, often if you think about a pop culture um, in post-apocalyptic film, um, you see everything's always burning, right? You, you see these desolate landscapes and fire. Now you don't know how the fire started. <laughs> you don't know how it's able to maintain, but especially if it's dirt and dust, but there's always fire, right? And so as we have entered this, what feels like a post-apocalyptic time, it really kind of has us think more about a post-apocalyptic landscape, but really more so impermanence. I've been thinking about ephemerality and impermanence more often just as a solution where if there are burn, if there's burning and something that, you know, Elizabeth was talking about at the outset where there's this gradual fire, right? It means that you have to make a new, you have to start over and just re repeat, repeat, repeat to create something different. So what that means is you're pushing against kind of these modern conceptions of permanence and this idea that you need these permanent structures to exist in order for people to be, um, to really be valuable, right? So it's in this way of change, understanding of change, cycle, impermanence that we actually might be able to get free, think of a different way to um, detach ourselves from capital in the ways that developers have attached themselves by building these structures. So kind of in these periods, certainly there is a racialized understanding of what fire can do, especially as it relates to resistance. But I do think that there's a way that we can decouple that and understand it as this way to proliferate life, a way to kind of imagine a future um, that, that's effective and and, and the pyro politics of it allow something different than what had happened in the past. Great, thank you. It's super rich. Um, so Karen Tay, Yamashita, Karen Tay. Um, you write of, of feverishness and infernos of being on fire, fired up, burnt out. We can uh, add invocations of playing with fire burning with passion or fever, all fired up. I mean, some of this inflected in things that people have said as commitment to a cause, angry or anger as, as an inflammation, as inflamed, a fiery temperament or temper, uh, an injury as causing 
inflammation, in this case, I have lots of it, of being on fire when performing, say, with electricity. Uh, these metaphors speak to the centrality of fire to life in some ways, but to death too, right? Uh, to, to possibility and threat. Uh, uh, and they often get taken up both seriously, but also in very cliched ways. I mean, the slippages are, you know, just run fast and furious. Um, so I wonder if you can speak uh, or uh, speak to how these metaphors speak to the centrality of fire, to life and death, to possibility and threat, uh, and also to cliche sort of in these sort of in the, in the complicated movements between these senses of things. Well, well, thank you. Thank you, David, for inviting me. I, I don't, I'm, yeah, I'm very honored. I, I guess I'm, I'm the writer of fiction in, in the midst of this uh, uh, conversation. And um, when, I, when I went back to think about this, I thought about um, James Baldwin's uh, Fire Next Time. And I went back to look at that and to read it again. And, um, you know, it, so in, that, was, that was published in around 1963, I, I believe. Um, and in the two years later, uh, the, the Watts riots, uh, that rebellion happened. And I, I was a young kid at the time and I was living in Los Angeles and I remember that event. And I remember my father was ill at the time and we, but we, we all gathered outside. We were living on the west side of Los Angeles in those years. <clears throat> and um, saw, you know, the city on the other side burning. Uh, and my father was a pastor of a Japanese American church in Los Angeles. And um, I, I, that church was not too far from Watts. And so I think we were all really concerned. And that was, that was the fire that I remember very early. Um, and then, as you know, I've written about Los Angeles. And I think that probably that is in the background of that work. Topic of Orange, um, and certainly the next fire, which was in 92, uh, uh, the fires which pr practically covered the city uh, in, those, in, that, uh, in that time. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm recognizing all of your uh, conversations about the, the urban fires and the, um, the, social, the, the relationship to the land. And um, in those years, as Japanese Americans, as African Americans um, and uh, Jews, there, there were social covenants in, and then Brandy will be able to talk about that. But um, <clears throat> because of those social covenants, we, we could only live in certain places in the city. Um, and so uh, that memory of it, in, at the same time, for the Japanese American community, there was, um, there was that community was returning from internment camps uh, in the post-war, and so my parents had been interning camps and imprisoned, and they had been imprisoned in places that were Indian lands, in fact, and so they came to restart their lives um, in. Um, 
in, in these locations where their families had started and to recoup that uh, period of time. So that relationship to um, urban spaces and also to um, the rebellions and uh, the, the social contracts that were created so that we were congregated uh, and only able to buy and live in certain parts of the city. Then, but at the same time, in, in, in 65, early 65, in February, Malcolm X had been killed. And so, and then in 65 the, was the, the rebellion in Watts. And um, at the same time, also what was going on was the Vietnam War. And so what I remember that war, and, and I was, I think I'm probably older than anyone here. <laughs> and I, I do remember all of this. And, and uh, what I remember is the, the Thich Quan uh, 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 Duc, who was the burning monk, and that taking that self-immolation of his life to protest. Um, at the same time, I was thinking about um, uh, Baldwin's words, the fire next time. And when I went back to look at that uh, epigram that he starts, that is the title of the book, what, he's, what it is, it comes from, let me find it here. It comes from a, a gospel song, uh, which is both a Negro gospel song, but it's also a bluegrass gospel. So it's been um, um, taken on by both white evangelicals and also uh, the black church. And, and the words are, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I, it, it is part of this sense that we've had all this year of disaster. Um, it's the fire next time. Um, and then for my, my people, my community also, it has also to do with um, the devastation or the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, and then more recently, the um, the events at Fukushima, the tsunami, and the nuclear um, catastrophe there. So those, and I would I would also say the uh, firebombing of, of of Japan, in every urban city that was firebombed by uh, American um, bombings, and um, and coming out of that um, that wartime situation. So then, but. But returning to maybe um, something that Elizabeth and also Brandy wanted to say about um, talking of the future, talking about the future and um, thinking about fire as kind of ceremony. Um, I was thinking about how fire also has been used in, um, in the ceremonies of return to uh, spaces in Japan. So in the Obon, there's always a, a bonfire um, and um, there are lanterns lit and candles lit for the returning of 
of ancestors. And there is also uh, the use of a, a, the play, the no play. And in the no play, traditionally the no play was um, played outside. It's the mask um, play um, where there's a bonfire that lights the stage and the dancers uh, who are masked dance behind it traditionally very slowly. And then what happens to their faces as they move um, if, uh, shadows the mask. And, but what the characters on the, in the play of No normally are, they are ghosts. And they're a ghost of folks who cannot leave because they have a need to tell about their suffering. And so in these stories of No, before a bonfire, these stories are told and um, the audience, but also the priest who participates in the, the No dance uh, is able to bless, bless that memory and allow that, um, that ghost to finally die. So, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I'm just, I feel like I'm wandering. <laughs> um, but I, I feel many, many connections to everything that's being said. I mean, I, I live for, uh, for 10 years in, in Brazil. And so I'm also collect, connected to uh, that uh, space. Um, and certainly I, I'm aware of the fires and the destruction of that forest there. So I guess I'll stop right there. Great, thank you. Um, this has obviously been a very rich set of re reflections. I want to uh, just sort of begin opening it up by asking each of you if you want to uh, pick up on or reflect on or run with anything that any of the others have, have said. Um, and you know, just put up your hand so you want to speak or start speaking um, uh, in, in this context. Yeah, Elizabeth. I guess, um... I mean, and this may be the opposite of what you were saying, um, but also to, I mean, I think we've spent a lot of time uh, highlighting the destructive and potentially constructive nature of fire, but also to be thinking um, in other ways uh, about fire as culture, fire as family. And I know Beth said she doesn't like that term cultural fires. And I'd be curious to, to hear more about that. But in thinking, you know, since moving here to California, um, and starting to work with you know indigenous students who are are interested in cultural burning um, and the tribes here that are looking to revitalize that um, and and Frank Lake has this great term of pyrokincentricity or you know basically how these family-like reciprocal relationships and connections to fire um, the people in communities have and the necessity of using fire in these culturally informed ways, these constructive ways um, to keep the land healthy, to keep communities healthy. You know, he talks about fire as social ecological medicine. Um, so thinking about fire as medicine when, you know, what do they say? The dose makes the poison, right? So yeah. um, thinking about how, you know, fire is medicine when appropriately applied and how, you know, and I think about that through the lens of most of the work that I'm doing is around food sovereignty and the way that tribes are looking to revitalize food systems here 
um, and the necessity of fire applied to the land through this traditional ecological knowledge, traditional fire knowledge methods. I should just be very clear. I don't like the word culture because of its background in, in anthropology and the way in which, you know, I, I think I don't have to do the drill. Um, but that said, absolutely. I mean, what, a, what I just wanted to foreground as a way of like setting the ground for at least Cotterbing is, is, is the way in which settler colonialism doesn't look at its own participation in creating the kindling, right? Or they're so literal minded about it. But, but no, fire is absolutely fundamental to people's relationship to their own country. I mean, the, the, there's, there's, again, law is the wrong word, but there, there are absolute protocols about who can burn when, what country um, and when, and, and that's absolutely fundamental. There's also in, in Karabing area, which is this long coastal area, um, two very important fire stories that, that both create particular family relations to particular areas, but also join up the country. Um, and, and, and people are, so fire is central to Katabi, right? And proper uses of fire and who can use fire and, um, and teaching young kids to use fire. That's, that's you know, part and parcel of, of how people stay connected even as they are belonging to different places. Um, I'll put on the table something that's really interesting and I wish Natty was here, Natasha Bigfoot, because she, we were, two of us were talking about this. Fire is, is understood as a form of attentiveness, right? Whose opposite is jealousy. And it's very important to stories. Like if you, if you're not attentive to land and burning it and keeping, then, then, then the land will respond by, by stealing fire. So there's one story in which literally this jealousy story in which fire is submerged, but also in, in a certain kind of withdrawing. So, so there's, it's a very interesting, it's fire and jealousy in this, in this. And so the core affect amongst, and again, I wish I wasn't the only one here, but is, it's not desire, or it's jealousy. And, but jealousy is not covetness. Cove, how do you say it? Covet, covetness. Covetedness, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's about attentiveness. You're not paying attention to me. And that's ancestors, that's land, that's human. And I think fire, somehow fire and attentiveness are, are very close to each other. Brand you Karen, do you want to add anything or shift the conversation? I mean, I can ask more specific things, but I think in the in especially in the urban context uh, and thinking about fire, because oftentimes it, as it related to uprisings, again, there's usually buildings that are crowded. And so once you light fire to one, it spreads to others. And so in thinking about this attentiveness, or at least the need for attention, whether it's jealousy 
or just like a crying out for attention, right? Like you, you need it. Um, you need the fire to destroy, to fully destroy in order to ask for something. So there's, it's really productive um, in terms of, you know, I think specifically in the context of the Washington DC fires in 1968, in the neighborhood where I did my research, the fatalities, I mean, there were, there were three. Um, but as we think about the scale of the damage of the buildings themselves, three wasn't so bad um, based on what could have been expected, right? And so there's a way that the productivity of the fire allowed for the neighborhood to be rebuilt or at least reimagined. So it took a long time for the actual rebuilding, but at least it gave an opportunity for people to imagine what a new space could look like. And so in that way, the, the fire, the productivity of the fire kind of opened up um, this portal to see what it could look like, how specifically it could be a black space, but it had to be destroyed. It wasn't just, you know, knocking, a, uh, uh, knocking out windows or glass. It really had to do with burning the wood and having it spread um, and for it to be the most effective in that way. I mean, there's a sense in which the yeah, as a political technology, the kind of um, uh, the uh, the violence of the clearing right. that that fire makes possible also then enables uh, a reshaping of whatever the landscape is, whether it's a a political landscape. I mean, I think of you know a very very violent invocation of fire, which is. Uh, at some point in South Africa, the use of necklacing, yeah. right? Um, right, and and I mean it, you know, almost unthinkably violent, but at the same time, a clearing of a space, of you know, the absolute imposition of a violent political terrain in order to reshape that terrain in ways that open it up to other forms of being, right? Uh, and so there's something to be said about the way in which fire is invoked in the way in, in which uh, a number of you are, are, are speaking to in this sense. Karen, do you want to? I mean, fire is spectacle and, um, hmm. you know, and reproduced as on media as, you know, these bombs behind the, the heroes that emerge from the fires and Bodies being thrown from bomb um, and smoke. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, it, the, the naturalization of these horrific moments, which are almost, uh, well, cliche, if you wanted to speak about that, and, um, um, and even comical. Uh, and... Uh, and then all of this created into a speculative world in which uh, super um, humans or super robots or powers are able to control uh, that. I don't, you know, I think we also live with that uh, envisioning of, of the way fireworks or at least the way we don't know it works, right? Or we imagine that it's powerful. And I think that's also been very dangerous. Um, Somebody in the audience, Judith. Judith Can I just say that's really super interesting, Karen? Simply because the if you think of 
fire as a war technology uh-huh. has a history, right? And you could go back to the Greeks where we started and think about Greek fire, which we don't really know what it was. But there's not a fire was not a war technology for my colleagues here. It was a it it, it it's actually when done properly, it's considered to to clean and allow the grass to grow again so the animals come back, right? So, so, and indeed the story, one of the stories is not using fire as to, to, to intensify it as war, but rather to take fire and drown it in the ocean. That is the violence is removing fire, I guess, but it's, it, there's, a, there's a particular history to the, the transformation of fire into a war technology and it comes out of the Greeks. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, so that's. Uh, there's a question from Jim Farris along the lines I addressed particularly to Karen Tay. Uh, what about Burning Man? Uh, spectacle for sure. Is there more that we should account for in relation to that spectacularity? <laughs> um, uh, I've never been to Burning Man. I couldn't get there. My, my daughter is flying yeah, it's impossible. Uh, and, and certainly in the 60s, there were these spectacles of fire and using of um, fireworks and dynamite. I mean, fireworks, uh, absolutely celebratory and fun and yeah. magical. Yeah. Um, but dangerous as well, right? I remember being burnt as a kid from Poland. Yes. And then, of course, <laughs> yeah, the, the movement of the dynamite or the, the um, yeah, that into, as to, into far, firearms and that possibility. I, I, I don't know. I, 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 after you visit Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's hard to, um, yeah, it's hard to think about all of this in, in, in peaceful terms. It, it, that the burning of those bodies and, and the destruction, uh, the horror of it, uh, it's unspeakable. It's really unspeakable. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to move you know, with you uh, on this idea that, that fire is a cleansing or ceremony and all of those, those yeah. possibilities. Uh, at the same time, uh, it's, yeah. There's a question along these lines that sort of opens it out a bit um, from Radha Radhakrishna and his colleague here at Irvine. Um, he asked whether you could say more about how, how fire figures ambivalently in the undecidable relationship between nature and culture. I mean, I think if you, look at most of our ancestors regardless where you are had a very different relationship with fire than most civilized modern people do today and one of the first things that settler colonial governments did everywhere was to limit people's uses of open fire whether that is in Australia or here it was like no you're not going to burn the landscape you know even though people you know all these all these folks from europe who weren't used to using fire necessarily in the same kinds of ways um but yeah to be civilized you now had to contain fire 
inside your stove. Um, it's inside light bulbs. It's, you know, maybe you might light a candle or a cigarette, but, you know, one of the things that was interesting about everyone now that was gathering there um, at Standing Rock was to suddenly be in a very close relationship with fire all the time. Um, and some people, you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere with a wood stove, so I was a little more used to that, but for a lot of people who are used to turning a dial to um, interact with fire in any sort of way, that was a different thing. So I think, you know, in th you know, fire has then been reserved for these most, you know, for religious people, it's, it's for candles, it's for incense, it's for smudge, but it's not something that's part of your um, everyday, um, you know, life if you're embracing this, you know, civilized, cultured world. It's just my quick reflection. I mean, you invoke the religious, of course, as well, right? In the, I mean, both, both in its cultural expression, but um, as, as an ordinary, a fire as an ordinary me ordering mechanism in relation to religious life in some ways, I think of um, well, smudging, I mean, as you mentioned, the sort of sign of the cross and so on, but um, the, the lighting uh, of the lamp uh, uh, in the temple as an expression of keeping religious life going, right? Um, as as a, a deference to the spirit or whatever you might call it. Um, uh, but I think worth noting too is, you know, as, as Beth said, the, um, now all of a sudden you have, you know, the US Forest Service here, you have the authorities in Australia and in other places that were like, no more burning, that's so uncivilized, it's so dangerous, so uncivilized. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, can you tell us more about this cultural burnings that prevented the whole state from burning down back in the day? Like, hi there. <laughs> like, hi there. Really interested. <laughs> we haven't let you practice this in generations, but if you suddenly, you know, remember how all that worked and let us know. That'd be great. So before, you know, fire was very uncivilized, dangerous, primitive, and now it's like, oh, you all had a system. Um, there was a culture here. So I think that's some of the ambivalence that your mm. colleague was referencing. Beth, you were. were you no, no, no. Just, I just was having a moment of identification. I just <laughs> love that that first line that, you know, these are like 20, 30 year old young, young men and women, and the first line of this song about, you know, where you, and was try, try, talk long, <laughs> they won't listen, you know? They just won't listen. And they're still, and with the implication, they're still not gonna. <laughs> so sorry, I was just expressing a perverse right. void. Um, so here's a, a question for everybody from uh, Ruth Shu. Can you all speak about the points when fire moves from violence and weaponry uh, to part of rebirth or vice versa? So that shift, um, that we've been uh, referencing. What does attentiveness have to do with moving fire from one kind of tool to another kind of tool, uh, destructive to productive or even rebirth? What should we be attentive to, to each other's stories in these movements that are taking place? Brandy, do you want to begin? You know, I've, I've been thinking this whole time about something that Beth said um, in terms of the spectrum. So if we don't necessarily think of fire after the spark, but prior to that, so with rust and, and, and thinking about heat, right? And so I'm thinking about this longer trajectory of what fire becomes um, and how it's used or at least its meaning. And so again, you know, 
thinking in terms of various urban contexts, you know, heat has this particular meaning. Um, and what people are now starting to recognize are those areas where shade ends up being um, something that's prized because you have trees that can protect you from the sun, especially as it becomes more intense. And these ways that people are impacted, their bodies are impacted by this overheating. This is especially the case in Los Angeles and other areas. And so there's this way that intense heat has this particular violence on certain bodies who aren't able to seek, again, shade or shelter. And then moving it to where, you know, this aesthetic realm of thinking about rust and how rust is now seen, you want to rust something over, you don't want it to naturally become that. And so it's something that's, you know, authentic and worn. And so in that way, the heat does something that adds particular value. So it's this relationship that keeps going back and forth. And if we're moving along again, the spectrum and thinking about the spark, whether it be fireworks or you know, ways that um, we're celebrating fire, um, we're celebrating the spark, we're celebrating the light to this tool of, you know, it becomes a tool of destruction based on who starts it or who owns it, right? So it could be the same fire, it just depends on who's, again, controlling it um, or who's setting it. So I think it's more about the meaning than it is the actual activity. Um, if we bomb someone, it's seen as this opportunity to enforce our particular dominion over you know, a, a landscape or to determine that they are not modern. So we are going to modernize them by blowing them up and starting anew. So it, I really, if we're thinking about the culture, there is, I think, a particular culture of fire and thinking about the meaning and relationship of fire to the environment or different communities. But also we can think about the culture of fire as being something, again, what it means in different contexts, but on different bodies, um, how, how states, again, use it as craft to develop, um, to move people out of, out of the way or to kind of bring people in. So time, location matters. And this is especially, you know, becoming the case as Elizabeth was talking about, like with these most recent fires in California, it's just like now, now you're asking how <laughs> 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 you do these controlled burns, what kind of wildlife or thinking about plants and thinking about all these elements that we will never know because we didn't do this kind of burning or where we privileged expansion, we privileged building homes in the suburbs and exurbs and other areas over this burning that needed to happen in order to actually keep those areas safe. So again, it really does depend on the who, the where, how, all those elements to determine kind of the where it's violent or at least where it's viewed violent in certain cases. Anyone else want to speak to this? So uh, as, as you all have been speaking, I've been sort of wondering about um, I mean, fire is both a technology, we've spoken of it as a, uh, a technology, uh, even of the political. Um, uh, and I'm thinking of the role of the technology, of, of contemporary, what we think of as contemporary technology, right? Um, the computational technology uh, and uh, its, its need for resources in order to power itself. Uh, and in that need for resources to power itself, it, its need is ratcheted up and is ratcheting up uh, the necessity of um, uh, the reach for, uh, for energy, 
right? And that, that energy is produced in some ways, both produced you know, beneath it by a connection to fire, but it also threatens uh, an increased possibility of fire. So for example, just, I mean, uh, in the recent days in relation to uh, the firing of the uh, woman at Google, um, uh, it's been pointed out that the, uh, the amount of technology, uh, the amount of energy needed in order to do a pass through of very large data sets in order to be able to reproduce, you know, facial figurations for technology, AI uh, and, um, uh, and machine learning and so on. Um, in order to do one pass through of a very, very large data set takes as much energy as a, as a return flight from the West Coast to the East Coast, right? I mean, that's pretty staggering when you think about it, right? Um, the use of energy in order to be able to produce um, uh, one coin of Bitcoin, right? Is as much energy as the entire energy use of, uh, of the Czech Republic, which is 10 million people. Right, so you can just see the way in which technological resources are being um, used, which then sort of factors into uh, global warming, climate change, uh, which then factors into the the so-called threat of fire. Um, so, so that kind of relation between thinking of the past, thinking of the historical, thinking of the kinds of resources that the historical can bring to bear, rubbing up against the intensified presentism that contemporary technology at the very least encourages, if not does nothing but produce, um, is, seems to me exactly that kind of tension that, that we've been running through over here, which then threatens a possibility uh, of, of um, increased um, uh, th uh, threats of, uh, of the destructive side of fire rather than its enabling side. Right? Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, that's, I think that's right. It, and again, it goes to the question for me, at least of the technologies of attentiveness and, mm. and, and what Brandon was saying, like, what's being attended to, like, are we just paying attention to property? I mean, that what you began with, is that what's at the forefront? And again, not to, you know, hit this, but still today, fire is not considered a war against nature, right? You, you burn because you're attentive to what, say here, um, various birds, various grasses, various like little wallabies that you want to eat need, right? They like grass. And so, so it, it's, it's, and it's not a war against wallabies. It's like, well, you have to tend to them so that they, <laughs> they can attend to you, right? And, but in order, but in the, in the meantime, all this backgrounding is happening. Backgrounding of, of the smelting, the backgrounding of where the toxicity is is being, where, where those clouds of like, you know, the, the asthma producing areas, how they walk, the air conditioning. 
and absolutely the energy relating to the cloud that gives us the information so that we know what's going on, right? So it's this, it's in, in what are the ways in which our attention is diverted from what's really fueling the, the heating to, to first, as Elizabeth says, to first those uncivilized people that, you know, were just burning fires as if that's what you were just doing or having outside fires. And then the big fires, right? Which are, we would say destructive. So what, what are the technology of backgrounding and foregrounding and attentiveness and the, uh, those seem central. I absolutely think those are central. Uh, last thoughts, we're, we're sort of reaching the bottom of the hour and a half. Uh, anybody want to reflect on some things that have been drawn from uh, all of this? There have been some common themes. Karen, no? I'm flummoxed. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, do you want to... Oh, I think Beth uh, wrapped it up nicely there. We're all um, gonna pay better attention though. Yeah, I mean that that condition of attentiveness, I think, is very important, right? I mean, a, a sort of see a key consider consideration. Um, a final set of comments. It seems that the stage of capitalism is diverting our attention from energy production, as it is used to be from the human labor extraction that drove it. Um, earlier. I will end um, just with a, an image um, in part um, conjured through um, Karen Tay's namesake, uh, Yasuka Yamashita, who's a jab, Japanese jazz pianist, a very well-known jazz pianist who has engaged over the past 35 years, sort of bookended the past 35 years, um, with a jazz performance at a burning piano uh, mm -hmm. on, on, a, on a beach, right? So he's actually composing, uh, improvising, composing as a baby grand piano is burning in flames. And that relation between composing life and the threat of death in the face of this inflamement. And it led me then to sort of look at, there's a, an 80 year history of piano burnings. Uh, actually, they take on different contexts. I mean, some of them culturally indexed, but some of them related to the Royal Air Force in Britain um, and the uh, memorializing of um, airmen who are lost uh, and, and, and uh, conditions like that. Um, and burning a piano because one of the airmen uh, was, a, was a pianist. And they took out the stand-up piano and sort of burnt it outside. So there's a there's a complicated uh, relation between memory, history, um, composition, um, life framing, and uh, and and the play with death that that are produced through these images uh, of the relation between, in this case, sound, music, um, and uh, uh, and and the way in which life is uh, uh, put under threat as a, as a consequence. I want to thank you all. This has been a really, really, really interesting conversation, um, uh, really um, touching on um, 
key notions of life and death, of uh, um, the technology of politics, politics of technology, of our relation to each other, uh, to the land, uh, our refusal of that relation in some ways, um, our extractive relation to it and so on, and, and the rich relation um, to questions around property and control um, and so on. So thanks for a very rich conversation. We will put it up with resources uh, on our event website at uchri.org. Uh, it's been a great pleasure, really terrific. Cheers. And thanks to the interpreters as well. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Great. Thank you. Bye, everyone.